Listen, it's very pertinent information that you listen right now, especially if you're watching on YouTube. I didn't want to just shut the curtains and shut myself here and blind myself by this light. I'm both blinding myself with the light, but also I have the light behind me, so you can see the buses passing by. But it's a Sunday, so don't expect much action. Well, was that really necessary? Probably not, but speaking of necessary, this is by all means necessary. It's a podcast, and you're welcome to yet another mini-sode. Maya is the name, and today, like two weeks ago, you shouldn't really expect it to be less than an hour long, just because, again, lists are not, lists are my passion, okay? They're not something that I take lightly. So it's great that I'm not given a task of, like, writing up a list that needs to be read in a half an hour, because I would fail at that task. Because today we are talking about the crime cases that have changed laws forever. And just a quick note before we dive in, today's one won't be in a form of a countdown. You'll still get 10 cases or 10 laws that have been brought due to those cases. But yeah, it just won't be in a form of a countdown because it's people's lives. And I'm not saying that somebody's life and change in law that was brought because of their death matters more or less. That all being said, let's go. The first law we're going to talk about today is called Lindbergh Law. Well, actually, the official name is Federal Kidnapping Act, but it's infamously known as the Lindbergh Law. And why? Why is it infamously known as that? Well, that's because the original crime of the century case, which was the Lindbergh case in 1932, when the news of the aviation hero Charles Lindbergh's son being kidnapped from his own room in the middle of the night sent panic through the nation. <laughs> Can you tell that I'm back to drinking coffee because I just have spikes in mood and it shows in the scripts? Sent panic for the nation? That's something that I would definitely say person to person. What the police knew on the scene was that there was a ladder left, so they knew that the kidnapper used this ladder to climb up to the second floor window. They had muddy footprints left in the room, and they also discovered a ransom note demanding 50k in the son's room. This case is famous for plenty of things, one being that Al Capone even offered to help from prison, but for days investigators found nothing and kidnappers didn't really try to follow up on that ransom note. After three days, though, a new letter showed up and this time they demanded 70,000. So eventually the drop-off was arranged and Lindbergh's dropped off the money and they were told that their baby was on a boat called Nelly just off the coast of Massachusetts. But this was just a ruse, the baby was never found there, and in fact, a couple of days later, the baby was discovered near their mansion. And during the next few weeks, while they're still trying to research who actually killed their baby, the FBI was acting, or could act rather, should I say, just in the help capacity. So they could just like kind of aid here and there, but there was no federal jurisdiction. And finally, on May the 13th, 1932, the president directed all of the governmental agencies that they should place themselves at the disposal of the state and the FBI should actually be coordinating and investigating in this case. But you, as well as I know, in the case of any kidnapping, this is just too late. Plus, the baby was already found dead, so it's now like catching up while the person is 20 steps ahead of them, just because they didn't react in time. 
And this kidnapping and murder just looked up like it will be unsolved. That was until September 1934 when a marked bill from the ransom showed up. Because obviously, you know, when they arranged the ransom, the drop-off, they marked up that money so that if somebody scans it at a shop or like at the bank, it will be showing up as like a stolen money. It was like Ford fight. Is Ford fight? <laughs> Is that what Ford fight means? <laughs> It's like, just use a random word, doesn't matter, fuck it. The fake money, the fake dollar. So this is exactly what happened, and at the gas station, the attendant who accepted the bill wrote down the license plate of the car, because they were like, okay, this is something suspect. And this bill was tracked down to a German immigrant and carpenter, Bruno Hauptmann. But when detectives searched his home, they actually did find a chunk of the ransom money. But Houtman claimed that a friend gave him that money, like paying for some service, and he had no connection to the crime. But the prosecution and the cops weren't hearing it, and they actually arrested Houtman, and they managed to even match the... Um, ransom notes to his own handwriting. And the prosecution even went as far at the trial to match the wood that he used while he was doing his carpenting and shit to the leather that was used at the scene of the crime. So two years later, Hauptmann was arrested for the crime, he was tried, and he was actually sent to be executed, and he was executed in 1996. But this whole time, he insisted he was innocent. And still to this day, when it comes to this crime, this is kind of like a debatable topic. Like, was he actually innocent? Did they have enough evidence? And I think this crime might have actually resulted completely differently with the, you know, DNA, fingerprint, footprints, for example. Like, all of the evidence, if it was to be examined today, I'm not really sure that they would have enough to actually just arrest Hauptmann and just not even arrest him, but actually bring him to be executed based on these wood deductions, like handwriting experts, like that's kind of easily debatable in court today. And there were a lot of speculations that they actually just wanted to pin it on somebody who was German due to the anti-German sentiment and the hero worship for Lindbergh, because he was a pilot at the time. Of course, there was like a lot of anti-German sentiment that was rising up just prior to the Second World War. Now, remember what I was saying about the FBI and how basically everybody reacted too late? Well, the law was passed because of this kidnapping that made transporting a kidnapping victim across state lines a federal crime that is punishable by life imprisonment. And since the law made it a federal crime to transport victims, it also enabled the FBI and other federal agencies to bring their resources and to manpower these kidnapping cases as soon as possible, rather than weeks later. And the theory behind it was that it was passed because the federal law enforcement intervention was necessary here because like their local laws and their local enforcement officers couldn't effectively chase after these kidnappers across state lines. So they needed to involve somebody on a federal level. And that was just done weeks later. And fun, not so fun fact uh, about this law. Remember the bonus episode on Lisa Montgomery, the woman that uh, went into a house to kill the other woman and uh, snatch the baby out of her womb? Yeah, that one, the one that was recently executed. Well, she was prosecuted under the Lindbergh law because exactly that, because she traveled 
all the way to another state to commit this crime and then technically kidnap a newborn. The next spot on our list of cases that have changed the laws is introduction of 911. This is a super interesting case, and it's debatable on so, so many other levels. Like, it's, it made history not just for the introduction of 911. That is the case of Kitty Genovese. On March the 13th, 1964, Kitty Genovese was stalked, stabbed, raped, and murdered. And the New York Times reported that actually 37 people witnessed this, but nobody reported it. That immediately sparked up the debate, because have they reported it? If you remember what I just told you, there wasn't 911 before that, or was everybody feeling the bystander effect? Meaning that if you witness something on the street, you're like, well, somebody must have reported it, so why would I bother? Because then that's clogging the lines, you know, somebody already must have called the police without you actually checking that that's what happened. And this case is still heavily known mostly for the bystander effect, but actually the police interviews revealed that some witnesses did try to call the police. But let me tell you why, again, that's debatable. So what happened is at around 2.30 a.m. that morning, she left the bar where she worked and she began driving home in her car. So, while waiting for a traffic light, she was spotted by Winston Mosley, who was sitting in his parked car. So, now she arrives home at 3.15, but I didn't just mention this guy for no fucking reason, because as she's walking towards the apartment where she lives from her car, Mosley, who followed her home, yep, you guessed it, he exits the vehicle, which he parked just around the corner so she doesn't spot him, He was armed with a hunting knife and he approached her and started stabbing her. Now, one of the neighbors screams, let that girl alone. And that makes Mosley run away. And Kitty kind of moves towards the entrance of the building. And she's just like going in like, but she's collapsing because obviously this guy literally just stabbed her. So she's just injured. And nobody is kind of approaching to actually help her out either. And all of these witnesses now witness Mosley get away from the scene and drive away. But he returns 10 minutes later. This is like the stuff of freaking horror movies. Like, you just think you're safe, like somebody's gonna ring up the ambulance. But no, he returned. And he searches the parking lot, he searches like based on her blood trails, and manages to trace her in the hallway in the back of her building, where there was this other locked door that prevented her from going inside. This is when he proceeds to stab her several more times, to rape her, to steal around $50 from her, and then run away again. This went on for about half an hour, and she was only found by a neighbor and a close friend of hers, and she died in her arms while waiting for an ambulance. This piece of shit luckily was actually a repeat criminal, so he was actually arrested during the house burglary like six days after committing this, which was nice, because otherwise they would have probably searched for him for quite some time, and while in custody, he just fessed up to this murder. So he was sentenced to death, and later it was just changed to life imprisonment, but he died in prison at the age of 81, and he probably was one of the longest-serving prisoners, because he served like 52 years in motherfucking prison, which I bet was a great time for him. But, but... The point of this story is that at the time, to report an incident, you would have to dial 0 
for an operator or local police, and then the call would be transferred to a communications bureau before getting transferred again to a precinct, like where you lived. Which I just think is so dumb, like, and I also find it so bizarre that this is when it was changed, like, in the 1960s. It's like less than fucking 60 years that this exists. Don't make me do the right math, please. Because if you think about it, like, especially with the flip phones, like, the phones at the time, like, you could pot dial zero, like, any day. So I understand why this process was in place, but then you must realize, in the cases of emergency, it's kind of a dumb process. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to speak to a manager. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm just going to transfer that call. And then I'm going to transfer the call again. You're like, okay, cool. That's great if it's, like, a perfume shop. It's not really great if you're, like, dying right then and there, being stabbed to death. So, as I said, only after you would reach your own precinct, you would then get police officer dispatched to check if there is a potential crime. But being the police officers before 1960s, you must have been chilling, just living your fucking best life, being like, I might get one call a day, like, <laughs> if they get to us. And then you're like, but why is there so much crime that the police isn't called to? That's why. So this all changed with Genovese's murder, and in 1967, a nationwide distress hotline was introduced to replace this method, and this is how 911 was born. Now, you, like me, might have wondered why that particular number. And well, I partially answered that. It's for you not to be able to, like, butt dial it. But I also wanted a number that was short, that was unique, like easy to remember for people, and 911 has never been used as the area code or service code before, so people were easily to just remember it. And also, I don't know if you remember, but if you do, welcome to the old people club. Remember rotary phones? Oh, I love those so much. Like, my grandma still has one. <laughs> I sometimes play with it when I'm there. I'm like, I love this shit. It was so slow. It was like, you meditate while you ring a full-ass number. But yeah, rotary calls, like, you needed something short. Because, again, <laughs> it takes a bit. Until you reach that, like, sundial, you know, you go nine, and then, like, two short ones. <laughs> and fun fact for your next house party, the first 911 call was made in Haleville, Alabama, on February 16, 1968. The next law we are going to talk about is Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act. It was named after a little boy called Adam Walsh, who was only six years old, when he went missing in this Florida mall on July 27, 1981. So he was there with his mom, and his mom was shopping, and she allowed him to watch a group of older boys play video games in the toy department while she went to a shop next door. So she only went for 10 minutes, but when she returned, he was already gone. And although it was only 10 minutes, somebody managed to grab the kid and evade, like, the immediate police ground air searches that were happening in the area. And 16 days after, his severed head was found by some fishermen. And yes, only the head. With this case, the respect you have for these parents is, is insane. They're, like, just the respect that you get from them, like, because... With his son's killer, still unknown, John Walsh, his dad, in 1988, became the host of America's Most Wanted. 
As plenty of you know, this show was actually assisting to put more than 1,200 criminals behind bars. Because John Walsh, I think he was working in hospitality, like he was working for hotels, but he immediately just devoted himself to victim advocacy, to criminal justice after his son disappeared. That would have been enough, but no. His parents, John and Riva Walsh, actually began helping other parents to protect their children. They've done this only four days after their son's funeral. Like, these parents are insane. They pushed the Missing Children's Act that was enacted in 1982, and they co-founded the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Then John started the America's Most Wanted in 88, and every week he would be like, these are the most wanted fugitives, help us track them down, audience. And so they did. But two big exchanges that happened were one was Code Adam program, and that's the one that helps children who are lost in stores, in department stores, in public places, to get reunited with the parents more quickly. So that's the one you still must have or might have heard somebody use, you know, as a grown-up, where you go to the information counter and you're like, hey, I can't find this person, can you just, you know, announce to everybody with your little megaphone speaker tool? like their name and where to appear. And if you hear code Adam over stores intercom, it means you should be on alert for a lost child or any suspicious activity. The second piece of legislation was the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act, and this is actually a federal statute that was signed by George Bush in 2006. And for you to understand how this came about, let me back up a bit. So the Hollywood Police Department actually officially identifies serial killer Otis Tool as one of the most disgusting-looking ones. If you ever have to struggle remembering who Otis Tool was, it was the one that looked like he cannot get laid for the life of him. Tool died in prison in 1996 while he was serving life for other crimes, but... While he was serving life in prison, he confessed to be the killer of Adam Walsh. But the investigators were kind of digging and were like, okay, you know what we didn't find on Adam Walsh that you are, again, not really saying? Well, uh, his body, sir. So if you truly killed Adam Walsh, where is the rest of his body? And he obviously led them to some bogus locations. So they were like... We don't really believe that even though he confessed that he is the killer of Adam Walsh, but regardless, he was a sex offender, a very well-known one as such. And again, a lot of kids died because he just lived on their streets. And Tool would also later recant these confessions, because so he would say, oh yeah, I was actually bullshitting you, a piece of shit. Just imagine putting the parents through all of that, just for, for what? For what? For you to be like a sick fuck from prison. So... The Walsh Act was actually introduced to organize sex offenders into three tiers according to the crime they committed. So tier three offenders are the most serious ones, and they need to update their whereabouts every three months for a lifetime. And they need to be on this registration and basically need to do this until they drop dead. Tier 2 offenders need to update their whereabouts every 6 months with 25 years of registration as a sex offender, and Tier 1 must update their whereabouts every year with 15 years of registration. And what this law enacted was, if you fail to register and update this information, you are going to be charged, because it's a felony under the law. 
But because our boy John was now fully immersed into criminal justice system, he knew, mm, wait, I need to add something here, otherwise there are going to be some loopholes. So this statute also meant that if you are a registered sex offender and you're moving to another state because, of course, you are, you think you're a slick fuck, well, they're going to have your criminal history there, as well as in your original state. So you need to register in any state that you decide to move because you thought you were going to get away with this. That was the basis of the law, but of course it had like a lot more to go on, such as implementing harsher sentences for crimes against children, providing resources and education, and assisting states in keeping these offenders with a low probability of rehabilitation, such as the ones in Tier 3 or Tier 2 of the streets. And there are different variations of this law. There is Sarah's law in the UK, um, Sarah's mom as well. Watch that case on Eleanor Neal's channel. She covered it beautifully as she does with every single case. Sarah's mom is also a badass. I would not fuck with Sarah's mom. And then there was a Megan's law in the US. There was also Jacob Wetterling's act. All of these laws unfortunately stemmed from the cases where a sex offender was just allowed to live in the neighborhood or in certain cases on their own street, without the family ever being informed. The next law we're going to talk about today is actually Amber Alert. I didn't know that this was based on a case, which was really dumb of me, because literally until I actually heard this story, I think it was like my favorite murder a year ago, I was like, oh, that was based on a case, that makes complete fucking sense, yes. It was based on the case of Amber Hagerman, who was born in November 1986, and she was kidnapped when she was riding her bike with her brother. The neighbor actually witnessed the kidnapping and he was the one to call the police and the brother went home to tell the mother and grandparents what happened. And you're getting a quick bonus case here because this case actually kind of intertwines with another one. So on hearing this news, Amber's dad, Richard, calls Mark Klaas. Who was Mark Klaas? Well, his daughter, Polly Klaas, was also abducted and murdered in California in 1993. So 12-year-old Polly Klaas was kidnapped from a sleepover, which is just next-level creepy, and murdered in 1993 and during this investigation, it was discovered that her killer committed multiple previous offenses. So, Polly's crime in itself brought another law. You're getting a bonus law this episode. And this was the Free Strikes Law in California, which meant that defendants with one serious conviction may have their sentence doubled with a second one. And anybody with two previous convictions must automatically serve 25 years to life when they get caught the third time, no matter the severity. This is, again, one of those highly debated laws, but I just wanted to put it there because this kind of happened one after the other. So after Richard consulted with Polyclass's dad, they obviously called the news media, called the FBI, and they were immediately on it because they knew the severity and they knew they needed to react immediately. Four days after she was kidnapped, her body was discovered in a creek behind this apartment complex and she was severely wounded, in particular in her neck area. And another thing that was relevant here is that her discovery site was less than eight kilometers from where she was taken from. To this day, this case is unfortunately unsolved 
And again, if you remember, only one person saw what happened, like her brother was just sort of riding and then he turned around and so that his sister wasn't there any longer. But that didn't stop, in this case, actually, Amber's mom, herself, Diane, Simone. She was like, listen, I have, I have thought of something. So she calls in the local radio station and she tells them, I have an idea. I think it might work very easily, actually. So you see how you're a radio, right? So you see how local media like sends weather alerts when there's like a storm coming, like hey, there's a tsunami in the area, whatever the fuck it is. Well, why wouldn't you be able to do the same when a child goes missing? Like it seems like you already have the systems in place. So when these weather alerts happen, they interrupt everything. Television, radio broadcasts, while making this loud noise. Why not do the same for a kidnapped child? And this led to broadcasters partnering up with the local law enforcement to alert the viewers, the listeners, to different child kidnappings. And since 1996, the Amber Alert went nationwide. I read somewhere that in 2015, experts actually believed that at least 800 or more children were found safe due to the Amber Alert system. Because immediately everybody is on alert and you are reporting anything suspicious that you see. The way Amber Alerts actually work in practice is once the police officers determine the case meets certain criteria, like probably the age of the child whether it was actually kidnapped, etc. They alert the broadcasters and state transportation agencies, and then the alerts are issued that interrupt programming, appear on different transportation signs, show up on these digital billboards that we have today, and also they arrive as text messages on cell phones as well. And because of the legend that was Amber's mom, Amber Alert actually led to different programs such as Silver Alert, for missing senior citizens that might be suffering with dementia or other mental issues, and Blue Alert, which aids police officers missing in the line of duty. Which I love the names. Silver Alert. It's like, mm, Silver Fox, Michael Scott. Okay. But come on, Michael Scott in like 40 year old virgin or whatever the fuck the show is called. Whatever the fuck that movie was called. And like Michael Fox, like, you know, now you're like, damn. Who is the other one? What's the guy in the intern? Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. Also, looking a lot better older than younger, right? I can't visualize now Robert De Niro younger. <laughs> You're the one that started this dumbass game. Okay, the next person on the list. Serious topic, Maya. Get the fucking grip. Um, Next person on the list. Well, rather, next laws on the list were the anti-stalking laws. And you will remember this girl. And you will remember it again, probably, because of an inappropriate comment that I have made. So there is a mini-sode on, on, in this archive that is based on Catcher in the Rye. I don't know what the mini-sode is called. Just type in Catcher in the Rye. By all means necessary, it will pop up. So in this mini-sode, I spoke about plenty of cases that the book Catcher in the Rye might have inspired to happen. And one such piece of work was the guy that attacked and killed the actress Rebecca Schaefer. And the one thing that I said was inappropriate was that I vividly remember, because I vividly remember Rebecca Schaefer's face, that during that episode I said that um, she could turn me. <laughs> she was the prettiest woman and actress in the 80s. And I still stand by that. It's not bad. You will never convince me otherwise. 
so the case that changed the laws was that Rebecca was the young actress who was acting in this successful sitcom My Sister Sam in the 1980s. But one day she actually met Robert John Bardo in person. Well, Robert John Bardo was actually stalking her for months and then he moved to the place where she lived. He was writing her letters and they kind of like escalated as well because you see when she was in My Sister Sam like she was all this like innocent fresh race actress and then she obviously took different roles after it because that's how they make money and this guy just because of his mental health didn't realize that that's not the actual representation of her real life and that even if it is it shouldn't bother you you're the one that should get freaking therapy so he thought in this new role that she was actually cheating on him because she was having a relationship on screen so the vehicle privacy laws at the time just did not exist so bardo actually hired like a private detective to trace down the actress's home address in west hollywood And on that day, he actually came all the way from Arizona to her apartment and he just like knocked on the door and asked her for the autograph. And she didn't think at first anything of this. I guess her address was publicly published somewhere. I don't know. But then she was all nice, you know, like she set him off. So like, goodbye, young man. Great. This is great. Just now move on. But he actually just waited at this cafe and then later just returned to her flat and this time she was visibly just pissed so when he witnessed that or maybe he just planned to do this anyways he raised his gun and he shot Rebecca. Bardo got to start life in prison without the possibility of parole and Rebecca's murder actually resulted in America's first anti-stalking laws in California or just in general but can you believe it's 1990 Like, this is what I find so bizarre in every single instance that I'm talking about. I'm like, how? How did something like this just not exist before? So, 1990, California passes a first-ever anti-stalking law, which makes it a felony to cause another or their family to be in reasonable fear for their safety and carries a state prison sentence. And the latest stats that I could find was that as of 2019, this law was recognized in every single of the 50 states in the US. And not just that, but remember how he actually obtained like her address? Well, additionally, because of this exact fact, California passed the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, which prohibits the DMV, the fucking registration agency, to give people's home addresses to like anybody, including PIs, like literally anybody. You, you can't just do that. That's only reserved for the law enforcement, not for motherfucking stalkers. Seems like common sense, a lot of these things, but... But if anything on this list will infuriate you, that is the next law. Just because joining Amber Alert and Co-Adam in another missing child system is the infamous case of Casey Anthony, and this is Kaylee's law. Kaylee Anthony was two years old when she was discovered dead in 2008, after her mother, Casey, failed to report her missing for over a month. When her mother failed to report her missing for over a month. This is a famous case, so I won't be going into too much details, but basically her grandparents realized that they actually haven't seen Kaylee in person or like in pictures or just anything 
for a month and that Casey just didn't have any explanation. Well, she was saying that Casey was with a nanny called Zanny and that she was just basically living with her, even though it was a nanny kind of situation. But then when they tried to track her down, they couldn't, so they reported to the police. Casey was eventually, as we know, acquitted, so she was never charged, even though her car had plenty of evidence that Kaylee was actually there, possibly bound, but she again tried to like do the amateur cleaning on it, but it just wasn't enough convicting Casey, and as you know, this is the one case where I said like whatever you think about it, her own defense knew how to play the courtroom. I'm not saying it was great, they literally said that Casey was abused by her father, which was just absolute lies, so she just didn't have ties with any of her family after this trial. She, I think, apparently there were allegations that she slept with her lawyer as well, but they just tried to divert the jury from anything but this case, basically, to justify that it couldn't have possibly been Casey, and unfortunately, they were good at it, and it worked. In the end, Casey only got to serve one year, she already has done, and to pay $1,000 for each false information that she has given to the court, which obviously prolonged the trial and obstructed the course of justice. So in response to this, it wasn't even Casey, of course it wasn't. Michelle Crowder of Oklahoma actually suggested Kaylee's law, and she submitted a petition on change.org, because if you remember, this is 2011. This is like 10 years ago. This is fucking insane. Michelle published this petition on change.org suggesting increasing the penalty to a fourth-degree felony if you fail to report the child within 24 hours within their disappearance or one hour of their death. And the petition quickly was viral because at this point, Casey was acquitted and people were pissed. And it got over a million 300,000 signatures, pressuring lawmakers to actually publish this as a law. So what does this law do? Well, Kaylee's law requires parents to report the child missing within 24 hours when they disappeared, like logically, right? You'd think so. And if you're aware of your child's death, it requires you to report it within an hour. And if you fail to do that, then you can face jail time and this will vary from state to state, but you're definitely going to jail. Obviously, there's criticism, like, you know, what if you know your child is at a camp? What if you know your child is at a sleepover? But then I say just use common motherfucking sense. There are adults taking care of your children there and also ask your child to check in. It shouldn't be like, oh my god, such a dilemma. She was aware that she has not seen her child for over a month in this case. You should know at all times where your child is and ask them to check in with you. Overall, 32 states were on board and filed some form of Kaylee's law in order to criminalize the failure to report your own missing child. A quick warning when it comes to the next two cases I'm going to talk about, because they are intertwined and they're brutal. We're talking about hate crime in both of those. And those two were combined into Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. They happened months from each other, so that's also why. So first, let's talk about James Byrd who was born in 1949, and he was a black man who was murdered by three white supremacists in Texas in 1988. Sean Barry, Lawrence Brewer, and John King 
picked him up. And instead of, as Bird requested for them to just drop him home, they took him to this remote country road out of time. They beat him up so that he couldn't defend himself and so that he was weak. They spray-painted his face. They urinated and defecated on him. And then, as if this wasn't enough, they chained him by his ankles to the pickup truck and then were just driving for miles, actually three miles, dragging him behind this pickup truck chained. Bird was actually, when forensically examined, said that he was conscious for much of this ordeal, like he was trying to keep his head up so that his head wasn't smacking on the asphalt, like trying to basically survive. And the autopsy suggested that he was killed about halfway through this dragging when his body hit the edge of this road, which severed his right arm and his head. These three shitheads, though, didn't even notice. They just kept driving until it was suitable for them, until they reached a black church. This is where they just dropped his torso off. And I'm saying his torso because, yes, they decapitated him. Like, this is brutal. And the next one is somehow at this same level, if not even worse. In the end, they were sentenced, and they were actually the first white men to be sentenced for death for killing a black person in the history of Texas. Like, are we okay? Are we okay? What year is this? This is 98, really. Before 1998, no. Before 1988, white men could literally just get away with anything. Brewer, one of them, was executed by lethal injection. King got lethal injection as well. And Barry got life imprisonment. And he's actually eligible and he's actually eligible for parole in 2038. And he is eligible for parole because other two testified that Barry, that the guy, again, I repeat, that can actually be out of prison, didn't get the death penalty because he cut Bird's throat before they basically tied him to this truck to be dragged. So basically he spared him from pain. I don't know. He was still fucking alive. Like, so what is this logic? Nobody's okay. Nobody's okay. You cannot convince me that any of us is actually doing okay for this to be logical. So in the end, he was just spared the death penalty. I'm not all for death penalty, but remember when I covered the Twitter killer like a week ago? I think like in these instances, definitely what happens in Japan when it comes to death penalty should happen here. Not the hanging part. The part where they don't tell you when you're about to die. The part when they literally wake you up one day and it's like, hey, jokes is on you, jokes on you, it's not today, it might be tomorrow. And then like just fuck them mentally every fucking day. Just go mentally screw them. It's like, hey, they're calling you to maybe clean the toilet, maybe go to the gallows. We don't know. That's what these motherfuckers deserve. And their death penalties kind of sparked everything like... Honestly, if Matthew Shepard's death didn't happen, possibly this act wouldn't have been introduced. Because Bush was the president at the time, and it is allegedly, allegedly, Bush isn't really, you know, not racist. Let's let's just say that. He isn't really, like, pro-BLM movement and all of that. So Bush actually said, like, well, they got the death penalty, so we don't actually need any tougher laws. We don't actually need anything else to be introduced. The governor, Rick Perry, who took over Bush, pushed this act to become the Texas state law in 2001. 
Now let's talk about the second person in this Hate Crimes Prevention Act, and that is Matthew Shepard. If you want to listen to a full account with all of the details on the Matthew Shepard story, listen to the Morbid podcast cover them. But I'm warning you, you will end up like sobbing. Like, there is no option. You're just gonna, because when you know all of the details without like any shorter version or anything, when you just have to sit there with it, you will end up sobbing when it comes to this case. Because Matthew was a 21-year-old, openly gay man who was just living his best fucking life attending college at the University of Wyoming in 1998. And one night he was just hanging at the bar when Russell Henderson and Aaron McKinney approached him. They just normally spoke to him, there were no like red flags, and then Matthew actually willingly left with them in Aaron's dad's truck. However, of course, here they brought Matthew to the isolated spot, where they tied him to this fence. They pistol whipped him. They pistol whipped his skull in particular, like, beyond recognition. When Matthew was found, I remember that part from this case, like, they couldn't even, like, identify the man at first. They kicked him in the genitals, of course, and then they just left him to die after hours of torture. He was discovered because this was so isolated. Shepard was just left there to bleed for between 15 to 18 hours and then was discovered by this cyclist and he was taken to the hospital where he died from his injuries after four or five days. At the murder trial, uh, these two pieces of shit actually used the gay panic defense. Okay. What is a gay panic defense? Because this this is such a trigger. I just want to punch people who still allow this to happen. How the fuck can you do this? It's like, no, hate crimes defense didn't exist before. But you know what did gay panic? I'm so scared that he's going to come approach me and I'm suddenly going to convert gay. Well, then, okay, heterosexual. Why are you so scared if you're so convinced that you are, like, so charming and, like, irresistible and that this guy is going to convert you gay. Shove it up your ass. So they testified that Matthew made homosexual advances towards them and used this gay panic defense, which is the legal strategy where the defendant claims that they acted, watch this, in the state of temporary insanity, committing murder, convenient, because of the unwanted same-sex sexual advances. And they can use this because they can claim that these advances were so offensive or frightening that they were provoked into reacting in the way that they would never react. No, they acted in the way of self-defense. They were of diminished diminished capacity. They were rendered temporarily insane. Please look at this. Please look at how hot Matthew Shepard was. And please look at these two pieces of shit. You would not touch them with a pole, a man or a woman. These are not the two guys that you swipe right on. These are not the guys that you notice in public and you're like, you know what? I'm going to chat these motherfuckers with their perky ass ears and like receding hairline in their 20s up. Yep, I'm going to chat these motherfuckers. These are the two guys. No. At best, you, you look at them and you try to hide your gag reflex because you want to bomb. And gay panic defense? How about we abolish that motherfucking shit, huh? Both of them luckily received life sentences, despite this. Just imagine the family having to go through this at trial, this fucking bullshit. What both Birds and Shepard's parents noticed is that neither in Texas nor Wyoming, where these crimes took place, they can actually prosecute these motherfuckers under hate crime because it wasn't a legislation at the time. So they worked to enact a law against hate crimes. 
the only federal statute on hate crimes that existed was the one in 1968, which made it a crime to use or threaten to use, force to willfully interfere with any person because of race, color, religion, or national origin. So 2009, Matthew Shepard, the James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act comes to power and it expands to include crimes based on the victim's sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. And the act also provided further funding, like for education to help investigate, prevent, and prosecute hate crimes. This was finally signed into law by President Obama on October 28, 2009. Did I just have to have a quick break because of rage? Yes, yes, I did. Last night, by the way, I record on Sundays, right? So last night was Saturday. <laughs> yes, my this is, they, they know the days of the week. And I don't know, you know, I used to party on Saturdays, but life is so sad. So instead of partying, I looked up lists of Scorpio killers and I have never found something that made more sense to me. Literally, it's like... Charles Manson, toy box killer, highly sexual. Um, Robert Ben Rose, that I covered on the podcast as well. Again, I was like, makes complete sense. I covered this woman for the YouTube channel, Carla Faye Tucker. And it's just a mental game. You're just like, Jesus, I feel so sorry for these police officers who have to sit in front of these fuckers and just try to negotiate. Because, boy, just... Trying to even communicate with Scorpius, you never know when the anger is going to come up. You never know when the rage is going to hit. You're just there like, oh my god, I'm at this person's mercy. Like, please do not have like a hidden knife in, I don't know, your esophagus or something. Esophagus. <laughs> that is correct pronunciation of that word. Yeah, you can definitely, yeah. Please do not try this at home. Hiding gun, hiding knives at the esophagus. Esophagus. <laughs> My we can this is why these ministers last for like two hours, okay? Two more cases. What is the number? Two. Okay, okay. So penultimate case of the day. Have you ever heard about Miranda rights? Well, if you haven't heard about the term, you have probably heard and overheard you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. To which I put in the script, but these overused words only exist for less than 60 years. Again, don't make me do math. It's very simple math, Maya. Uh, it, they were introduced in 1963, and now it's 2021. So it's very simple math. 57. <laughs> Still took it too long. On March 2nd, 1963, an 18-year-old woman from Phoenix told police she was abducted and raped in the desert. Police track this car down and match her description to a guy that they have arrested before for being a peeping Tom. This man's name was Ernesto Miranda. And in 66, he was arrested on the suspicion of robbery, kidnapping, and rape. And during the police interrogation, he confessed to committing the crimes. But of course, this conviction ended up being overturned because the interrogation methods were highly dubitable. And because of this, Miranda rights were created to prevent this from happening in the future. He was actually interrogated by two police officers for two hours, which resulted in him signing this bogus written confession. Then a trial, because now you have somebody confessing, of course, the jury is going to be leaning towards finding them guilty. Miranda was actually sentenced to 20 to 30 years on each count. 
1966, when they were overturned by the Supreme Court, they finally accepted that Ernesto's Fifth and Sixth Amendment rights were violated. But even if you know this case, you probably didn't know this second part. Like, I completely freaking forgot. So, he was released from prison because of this. But then, he was actually retried and convicted again because his jealous ex-girlfriend decided to actually go to the police and actually say, no, 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 he definitely confessed it to me. So, like, the police and everybody has been just fooled at the trial. So, he was again convicted in 1966, and he remained in prison for the next six years, and he was stabbed once he was released in a bar in 1966. But the circumstances in which Ernesto was arrested and then held in custody and then interrogated triggered the introduction of the Miranda rights. And as a result of them, each person needs to be informed of their rights when they're in custody and about to be and about to be interrogated. So they need to be informed that they have the right to remain silent, that everything they use can be used against them in the court of law, and they need to inform them that they can actually get an attorney and if they can't afford one, then then they will be provided to them at no cost. Because had Ernesto Miranda known this, he could have actually gotten a lawyer and none of this would have happened. And possibly then the second part where his jealous ex manages to see her opportunity to just get vengeance, get freaking revenge on this guy also would have never happened. And, and possibly then, because this is how the cause and effect in life works, he wouldn't have died in 1976 because maybe then at that point he wouldn't have been at that bar. I can't guarantee you that last part, but, you know, sequence of events. Causa y efecto. <laughs> Circle of hell. Just saying expressions at this point. We are, we are wrapping up with the last, with the last case that has changed the law. With this last one, I kind of have a confession to make. I have freestyled a bit. Okay, I'll explain as we go along. So, first, let's talk about Video Recording Act of 1984. Why are we talking about it? It will become important. Listen to me. So, under the British Board of Film Classification, or BBFC, they have to decide if the video is suitable for a classification certificate. So, you know, when you go into, you know, remember the time when you used to go into movies, or even now, when you watch it illegally or on Netflix, you have that, like, PG, or 12+, plus or, like, 15, or 18+. plus. Usually those are, like, the perimeters. So this act that was established in 1984 was there to enforce that. And because, especially at the time, it was a lot more manual, there were large amounts of videos in circulation, all of the movies that have previously been released before this act were given deadlines, where they have to be rated or they had to be removed from the shelves. Now we speed up to the actual crime that I'm going to talk about today. And this crime happened on 12th of February 1993 when two-year-old James Bulger was taken from the New Strand Shopping Center in Bootle. And again, very similar situation where like his mom was just shopping and these two boys just took him away from the shop pretending like they were his friends. And these two boys were called John Venables and Robert Thompson, and they were 10 years old. Two days after this crime, James's body was found mutilated brutally by these railway tracks. Luckily, there was enough CCTV and people recognized these boys because 
James was actually protesting. Like, he was kind of... They were leading him as if, you know, they were his brothers, like, holding him by his hands. But James was kicking, like, up the fuss. It just didn't look like a normal situation. Like, he was in distress. But again, everybody saw it and they were like, oh, it's just, like, three brothers. And the smaller one is just being antsy and nobody reported anything. So by the 20th of February, the two of them were charged with his abduction and murder. And the two of them were the youngest defendants in history to be convicted of murder. Now comes the part where I fully dug into this case because I thought there was a law brought around this particular part. That's where I said I freestyle. It wasn't this particular part, but it was something else. So... June 2001 comes along, and after a six-month review, the parole board actually ruled that these two boys were no longer fair to the public and they should be released from prison. So after serving only eight years, these two were not just released. I remember this case because this part pissed me off so much. They were given new identities. They moved them to secret locations under a witness protection-style program. They got new passports, new national insurance numbers, new qualification certificates and medical records. Literally, these two got, like, to start from page zero. Like, no, they were never criminals. No, this will never happen again. And again, because they were children when they committed this, and now they were grown-ups, nobody can even, like, make this connection because they have completely different names and technically it just appears as if they never had a criminal record. That is where the case stands today. But at the time, go back to when little James was abducted, the case aired on Crime Watch. And around the same time, the Ministry of Defense offered assistance to like enhance the CCTV footage. And the paranoia settled into the society. Like everybody was anxious, very fearful. Like, is there a child next? Like, is there somebody just on the loose abducting children? So when the link came that James was actually abducted by two other children, everybody try to point towards where would this come from, you know, the nature or nurture, were they just violent nature, or did they watch something that caused them to have this particular level of violence and display this particular mutilation, because if you remember, he was found by railway tracks, really particular again, extremely mutilated their details on this case as well but it's like where the fuck do 10 year olds get these kind of ideas that was the main question and the judge at the trial actually said himself that he suspected that their exposure to violent video films may be the part of explanation so the media took this and they milked it for all they got so the media kind of got a hang i have no idea how who the hell snitched was this even true But there was a blame at a certain point that they watched the slasher horror film Child's Play Free. I don't know much about it. I know it's one of the Chucky ones, so the really creepy doll ones. I wouldn't watch it at the age of 28. So I can tell you that it's probably 10 years watching it would be disturbed. Like we just covered two weeks ago, you know, the human experiments and like the Bobo doll. And I mean... There are some grounds to this. Like, not every 10-year-old would watch... I mean, definitely not every 10-year-old should watch this. But let's say every single 10-year-old is to watch this movie. Not everybody would react like this. But again, in these cases, it could have sparked some ideation. Like, it could have sparked some formation of... This is what we want to do to somebody. 
This was disputed by the police officers who said, like, okay, their parents had it, but, like, I don't doubt they have watched it. Like, there's no confirmation that two of them watched any violent movies in general. But the damage was already done. Because the Sun, the, the shitty newspaper, the shitty tabloid newspaper, staged a public uproar about burning horror videos for the sake of all of the kids. Burn your video nasty. And uh, video nasty, <laughs> I was like, this does not sound like a term. Somebody invented this. It is a term that is apparently only used in the United Kingdom <laughs> to refer to the number of films, typically like low-budget horror, just exploitation ones, that are criticized for their violent content by the press or sometimes religious organizations. And the term was popular apparently in the 1980s. I have not heard it in the modern day, but hey, the sun says it, so it, it must be true. I will, ne- I will eat those words until the day I die. <laughs> the sun said it, so it must be true. When has a single person ever said that? in public or otherwise. And due to the Sun's campaign, some video stores began to withdraw this particular film from its shelves, and one video chain actually burned all of its copies because of this uproar from the parents. So once the police actually confirmed, like, there is absolutely no way, like, for us to know for sure, well, that because the film board, the the BBFC, was technically used by Sun as a scapegoat for all these moms as, like, somebody to blame... Something had to be done. And in response to this, the government made some changes to the tests laid out by the Video Recordings Act. Previously, the BBFC would be given just like broad requirements on, you know, what they should consider when they make decisions on the age ratings, whereas now those were fucking spelled out. They're bullet points. The board now has to pay special regard to any harm that may be caused to potential viewers or through their behavior to society by the manner in which the particular work, the particular movie deals with criminal behavior, illegal drugs, violent behavior and incidents, horrific behavior, human sexual activity. And why is that a freestyle? Because this was an addition to the already made law. So in 1994, the legislation was supplemented by the video recordings, and this allowed the BBFC to revisit any of their existing decisions in the light of this new, you know, checklist. So the checklist is there. I thought this one was interesting because like kind of went from like one of the most brutal attacks in the UK history, but it was also like different. And I don't think many people know about video nasties, which just shouldn't be abolished as a term, please, for the love of God. Or just in general, there was like, you know, there is this whole act that decides on the PG or non-PG and how it was connected to a true crime case. So, you know, I kind of thought like, hey, there were nine cases there out of which you might have known about some, but no, I freestyled the way into your hearts with that last one. Yeah, freestyle the way into people's hearts. Sick, sick. You know, four years into this podcast, ministers are going to be like four hours long and the long episodes are going to be like six it's literally just like, hey, actually, I had to research, like, all of the cases associated with the thing that I'm talking about. It's like 20 cases in one. Yeah, let's not do that. Yeah, let's go. Next month, ministers, 20 minutes. That That is a challenge. That, I need to admit, that would be a challenge. For me, short form, definitely a challenge. So let's challenge ourselves. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and until then, until Monday, 
You have a great weekend. And you do what? You keep making the world a better place. How do you do that? One motivator time. Oh, my fuckers. Thank God. You should definitely stay away from lists. But lists are my passion. Lists are the passion. The Samoj passion. The Samoj. Samoj passion. Goodbye.